0: Part One, Chapters Seventeen and Eighteen of the Song of the Lark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jackie Drown. The Song of the Lark by Willa Sybert Cather. Part One, Chapter Seventeen and Eighteen the summer flew by thea was glad when ray kennedy had a sunday in town and could take her driving out among the sand hills. she could forget the new room which was the scene of wearing and fruitless labor dr archie was away from home a good deal that year he had put all his money into mines above colorado springs and he hoped for great returns from them in the fall of that year mr kronborg decided that thea ought to show more interest in church work He put it to her frankly, one night at supper, before the whole family. How can I insist on the other girls in the congregation being active in the work, when one of my own daughters manifests so little interest? But I sing every Sunday morning, and I have to give up one night a week to choir practice, Thea declared rebelliously, pushing back her plate with an angry determination to eat nothing more. One night a week is not enough for the pastor's daughter, her father replied. You won't do anything in the Sewing Society, and you won't take part in the Christian Endeavor or the Band of Hope. Very well, you must make it up in other ways. I want someone to play the organ and lead the singing at prayer meeting this winter. Deacon Potter told me some time ago that he thought there would be more interest in our prayer meetings if we had the organ. Miss Myers don't feel that she can play on Wednesday nights, and there ought to be somebody to start the hymns. Mrs. Potter is getting old, and she always starts them too high. It won't take much of your time, and it will keep people from talking." This argument conquered Thea, though she left the table sullenly. The fear of the tongue, that terror of little towns, is usually felt more keenly by the minister's family than by other households. Whenever the Kronborgs wanted to do anything, even to buy a new carpet, they had to take counsel together as to whether people would talk. Mrs. Kronborg had her own conviction that people talked when they felt like it and said what they chose no matter how the minister's family conducted themselves but she did not impart these dangerous ideas to her children thea was still under the belief that public opinion could be placated that if you clucked often enough the hens would mistake you for one of themselves mrs kronborg did not have any particular zest for prayer meetings and she stayed at home whenever she had a valid excuse Thor was too old to furnish such an excuse now, so every Wednesday night, unless one of the children was sick, she trudged off with Thea behind Mr. Kronborg. At first Thea was terribly bored, but she got used to prayer meeting, got even to feel a mournful interest in it. The exercises were always pretty much the same. After the first hymn, her father read a passage from the Bible, usually a psalm. Then there was another hymn, and then her father commented upon the passage he had read and, as he said, applied the word to our necessities. After a third hymn, the meeting was declared open, and the old men and women took turns at praying and talking. Mrs. Kronborg never spoke in the meeting. She told people firmly that she had been brought up to keep silent and let the men talk, But she gave respectful attention to the others, sitting with her hands folded in her lap. The prayer meeting audience was always small. The young and energetic members of the congregation came only once or twice a year to keep people from talking. The usual Wednesday night gathering was made up of old women, with perhaps six or eight old men and a few sickly girls who had not much interest in life. Two of them, indeed, were already preparing to die. Thea accepted the mournfulness of the prayer meetings as a kind of spiritual discipline, like funerals. She always read late after she went home and felt a stronger wish than usual to live and to be happy. The meetings were conducted in the Sunday school room, where there were wooden chairs instead of pews, an old map of Palestine hung on the wall, and the bracket lamps gave out only a dim light. The old women sat motionless as Indians in their shawls and bonnets. Some of them wore long black mourning veils. The old men drooped in their chairs. Every back, every face, every head said resignation. Often there were long silences when you could hear nothing but the crackling of the soft coal in the stove and the muffled cough of one of the sick girls. There was one nice old lady, tall, erect, self-respecting, with a delicate white face and a soft voice. She never whined, and what she said was always cheerful, though she spoke so nervously that Thea knew she dreaded getting up, and that she made a real sacrifice to, as she said, testify to the goodness of her savior. She was the mother of the girl who coughed, and Thea used to wonder how she explained things to herself. There was, indeed, only one woman who talked because she was, as Mr. Kronborg said, tonguey. The others were somehow impressive. They told about the sweet thoughts that came to them while they were at their work, how amid their household tasks they were suddenly lifted by the sense of a divine presence. Sometimes they told of their first conversion, of how in their youth that a higher power had made itself known to them. Old Mr. Carson, the carpenter who gave his services as janitor to the church, used often to tell how when he was a young man and a scoffer, bent on the destruction of both body and soul, his Saviour had come to him in the Michigan woods, and had stood, it seemed, to him beside the tree he was felling, and how he dropped his axe and knelt in prayer to him who died for us upon the tree. She always wanted to ask him more about it, about his mysterious wickedness, and about the vision. Sometimes the old people would ask for prayers for their absent children. Sometimes they asked their brothers and sisters in Christ to pray that they might be stronger against temptations. One of the sick girls used to ask them to pray that she might have more faith in the times of depression that came to her, when all the way before seemed dark. She repeated that husky phrase so often that Thea always remembered it. One old woman who never missed a Wednesday night and who nearly always took part in the meeting came all the way up from the depot settlement. She always wore a black crocheted fascinator over her thin white hair and she made long tremulous prayers full of railroad terminology she had six sons in the service of different railroads and she always prayed for the boys on the road who know not at what moment they may be cut off when in thy divine wisdom their hour is upon them may they o our heavenly father see only white lights along the road to eternity she used to speak too of the engines that race with death and though she looked so old and little when she was on her knees and her voice was so shaky her prayers had a thrill of speed and danger in them they made one think of the deep black canyons the slender trestles the pounding trains thea liked to look at her sunken eyes that seemed full of wisdom at her black thread gloves much too long in the fingers and so meekly folded one over the other her face was brown and worn away as rocks are worn by water There are many ways of describing that color of age but in reality it is not like parchment or like any of the things it is said to be like that brownness and that texture of skin are found only in the faces of old human creatures who have worked hard and who have always been poor one bitterly cold night in december the prayer meeting seemed to thea longer than usual the prayers and the talks went on and on It was as if the old people were afraid to go out into the cold, or were stupefied by the hot air of the room. She had left a book at home that she was impatient to get back to. At last the doxology was sung, but the old people lingered about the stove to greet each other, and Thea took her mother's arm and hurried out to the frozen sidewalk before her father could get away. The wind was whistling up the street and whipped the naked cottonwood trees against the telegraph poles in the sides of the houses. Thin snow clouds were flying overhead, so that the sky looked gray with a dull phosphorescence. The icy streets and the shingle roofs of the houses were gray, too. All along the street shutters banged, or windows rattled, or gates wobbled, held by their latch but shaking on loose hinges. There was not a cat or a dog in Moonstone that night that was not given a warm shelter. The cats under the kitchen stove, the dogs in barns or coal sheds, when thea and her mother reached home their mufflers were covered with ice where their breath had frozen they hurried into the house and made a dash for the parlor and the hard coal burner behind which gunner was sitting on a stool reading his jules verne book the door stood open into the dining room which was heated from the parlor mr kronborg always had a lunch when he came home from prayer meeting and his pumpkin pie and milk were set out on the dining table mrs kronborg said she thought she felt hungry too and asked thea if she didn't want something to eat "'No, I'm not hungry, mother. I guess I'll go upstairs.' "'I expect you've got some book up there,' said Mrs. Crombord, bringing out another pie. "'You'd better bring it down here and read. Nobody will disturb you, and it's terrible cold up in that loft.' Thea was always assured that no one would disturb her if she read downstairs, but the boys talked when they came in, and her father fairly delivered discourses after he had been renewed by a half-pie and a pitcher of milk. "'I don't mind the cold.' I'll take a hot brick up from my feet i put one in the stove before i left if one of the boys hasn't stolen it good night mother thea got her brick and lantern and dashed upstairs through the windy loft she undressed at top speed and got into bed with her brick she put a pair of white knitted gloves on her hands and pinned over her head a piece of soft flannel that had been one of thor's long petticoats when he was a baby thus equipped she was ready for business she took from her table a thick paper-backed volume one of the line of paper novels the druggist kept to sell to travelling men she had bought it only yesterday because the first sentence interested her very much and because she saw as she glanced over the pages the magical names of two russian cities the book was a poor translation of anna carnina thea opened it at a mark and fixed her eyes intently upon the small print The hymns, the sick girl, the resigned black figures were forgotten. It was the night of the ball in Moscow. Thea would have been astonished if she could have known how, years afterward, when she had need of them, those old faces were to come back to her, long after they were hidden away under the earth, that they would seem to her then as full of meaning, as mysteriously marked by destiny, as the people who danced the Mazurka under the elegant Korsensky. CHAPTER 18. Mr. Kronborg was too fond of his ease and too sensible to worry his children much about religion. He was more sincere than many preachers, but when he spoke to his family about matters of conduct, it was usually with a regard for keeping up appearances. The church and church work were discussed in the family like the routine of any other business. Sunday was the hard day of the week with them, just as Saturday was the busy day with the merchants on Main Street. Revivals were seasons of extra work and pressure, just as threshing time was on the farms. Visiting elders had to be lodged and cooked for, the folding bed in the parlor was let down, and Mrs. Kronborg had to work in the kitchen all day long and attend the night meetings. During one of these revivals Thea's sister Anna professed religion with, as Mrs. Kronborg said, a good deal of fuster. While Anna was going up to the mourner's bench nightly and asking for the prayers of the congregation, She disseminated general gloom throughout the household, and after she joined the church, she took on an air of set-apartness that was extremely trying to her brothers and her sister, though they realized that Anna's sanctimoniousness was perhaps a good thing for their father. A preacher ought to have one child who did more than merely acquiesce in religious observances, and Thea and the boys were glad enough that it was Anna and not one of themselves who assumed this obligation. "'Anna? She's American.' Mrs. Kronborg used to say, the Scandinavian mold of countenance, more or less marked in each of the other children, was scarcely discernible in her, and she looked enough like other moonstone girls to be thought pretty. Anna's nature was conventional, like her face. Her position as the minister's eldest daughter was important to her, and she tried to live up to it. She read sentimental religious story-books and emulated the spiritual struggles and magnanimous behavior of their persecuted heroines. Everything had to be interpreted for Anna. Her opinions about the smallest and most commonplace things were gleaned from the Denver papers, the church weeklies, from sermons and Sunday school addresses. Scarcely anything was attractive to her in its natural state. Indeed, scarcely anything was decent until it was clothed by the opinion of some authority. Her ideas about habit, character, duty, love, marriage, were grouped under heads, like a book of popular quotations, and were totally unrelated to the emergencies of human living. She discussed all these subjects with other Methodist girls of her age. They would spend hours, for instance, in deciding what they would or would not tolerate in a suitor or a husband, and the frailties of masculine nature were too often a subject of discussion among them. In her behavior, Anna was a harmless girl, mild except where her prejudices were concerned, neat and industrious, with no graver fault than priggishness. But her mind had really shocking habits of classification. The wickedness of Denver and Chicago, and even of Moonstone, occupied her thoughts too much. She had none of the delicacy that goes with the nature of warm impulses, but the kind of fishy curiosity which justifies itself by an expression of horror. Thea and all Thea's ways and friends seemed indecorous to Anna. She not only felt a grave social discrimination against the Mexicans, she could not forget that Spanish Johnny was a drunkard and that nobody knew what he did when he ran away from home. Thea pretended, of course, that she liked the Mexicans because they were fond of music, but everyone knew that music was nothing very real and that it did not matter in a girl's relations with people. What was real, then, and what did matter? Poor Anna! anna approved of ray kennedy as a young man of steady habits and blameless life but she regretted that he was an atheist and that he was not a passenger conductor with brass buttons on his coat on the whole she wondered what such an exemplary young man found to like in Thea. dr archie she treated respectfully because of his position in moonstone but she knew he had kissed the mexican baritone's pretty daughter And she had a whole dossier of evidence about his behavior in his hours of relaxation in Denver. He was fast, and it was because he was fast that Thea liked him. Thea always liked that kind of people. Dr. Archie's whole manner with Thea, Anna often told her mother, was too free. He was always putting his hand on Thea's head or holding her hand while he laughed and looked down at her the kindlier manifestation of human nature about which anna sang and talked in the interests of which she went to conventions and wore white ribbons were never realities to her after all she did not believe in them it was only in attitudes of protest or reproof clinging to the cross that human beings could be even temporarily decent preacher kronborg's secret convictions were very much like anna's he believed that his wife was absolutely good but there was not a man or woman in his congregation whom he trusted all the way. Mrs. Kronborg, on the other hand, was likely to find something to admire in almost any human conduct that was positive and energetic. She could always be taken in by the stories of tramps and runaway boys. She went to the circus and admired the bareback riders who were likely good enough women in their way. She admired Dr. Archie's fine physique and well-cut clothes as much as Thea did and said she felt it was a privilege to be handled by such a gentleman when she was sick soon after anna became a church member she began to remonstrate with thea about practising playing secular music on sunday one sunday the dispute in the parlor grew warm and was carried to mrs kronborg in the kitchen she listened judicially and told anna to read the chapter about how naaman the leper was permitted to bow down in the house of Thea went back to the piano, and Anna lingered to say that, since she was in the right, her mother should have supported her. "'No,' said Mrs. Kronborg, rather indifferently. "'I can't see it that way, Anna. I never forced you to practice, and I don't see as I should keep Thea from it. I like to hear her, and I guess your father does. You and Thea will likely follow different lines, and I don't see as I'm called upon to bring you up alike.' Anna looked meek and abused. "'Of course all the church people must hear her. Ours is the only noisy house on the street.' you hear what she's playing now, don't you? Mrs. Kronborg rose from browning her coffee. Yes, it's the blue danube waltzes. I'm familiar with them. If any of the church people come at you, you just send them to me. I ain't afraid to speak out on occasion, and I wouldn't mind one bit telling the lady's Aid a few things about standard composers. Mrs. Kronborg smiled and added thoughtfully, no, I wouldn't mind that one bit. Anna went about with a reserved and distant air for a week and Mrs. Kronborg suspected that she held a larger place than usual in her daughter's prayers, but that was another thing she didn't mind. Although revivals were merely a part of the year's work, like examination week at school, and although Anna's piety impressed her very little, a time came when Thea was perplexed about religion. A scourge of typhoid broke out in Moonstone, and several of Thea's schoolmates died of it. She went to their funerals, saw them put into the ground, and wondered a good deal about them but a certain grim incident which caused the epidemic troubled her even more than the death of her friends early in july soon after thea's fifteenth birthday a particularly disgusting sort of tramp came into moonstone in an empty boxcar. thea was sitting in the hammock in the front yard when he first crawled up to the town from the depot carrying a bundle wrapped in dirty ticking under one arm and under the other a wooden box with rusty screening nailed over one end he had a thin hungry face covered with black hair it was just before supper time when he came along and the streets smelled of fried potatoes and fried onions and coffee Thea saw him sniffing the air greedily and walking slower and slower he looked over the fence she hoped he would not stop at their gate for her mother never turned anyone away And this was the dirtiest and most utterly wretched-looking tramp she had ever seen. There was a terrible odor about him, too. She caught it even at that distance and put her handkerchief to her nose. A moment later she was sorry, for she knew he had noticed it. He looked away and shuffled a little faster. A few days later, Thea heard that the tramp had camped in an empty shack, over on the fast edge of town beside the ravine, and was trying to give a miserable sort of show there. He told the boys who went to see what he was doing that he had traveled with a circus. His bundle contained a filthy clown suit and his box held half a dozen rattlesnakes. Saturday night, when Thea went to the butcher shop to get the chickens for Sunday, she heard the whine of an accordion and saw a crowd before one of the saloons there she found the tramp his bony body grotesquely attired in the clown suit his face shaved and painted white the sweat trickling through the paint and washing it away and his eyes wild and feverish pulling the accordion in and out seemed to be almost too great an effort for him and he panted to the tune of marching through georgia after a considerable crowd had gathered the tramp exhibited his box of snakes announced that he would now pass the hat and that when the onlookers had contributed the sum of one dollar he would eat one of these living reptiles the crowd began to cough and murmur and the saloon-keeper rushed off for the marshal who arrested the wretch for giving a show without a license and hurried him away to the calaboose the calaboose stood in a sunflower patch an old hut with a barred window and a padlock on the door the tramp was utterly filthy and there was no way to give him a bath the law made no provision to grubstake vagrants so after the constable had detained the tramp for twenty-four hours he released him and told him to get out of town and get quick the fellow's rattlesnakes had been killed by the saloon keeper he hid in a box-car in the freight yard probably hoping to get a ride to the next station but he was found and put out after that he was seen no more he had disappeared and left no trace except an ugly, stupid word chalked on the black paint of the seventy-five-foot standpipe, which was the reservoir for the moonstone water supply. The same word, in another tongue, that the French soldier shouted at Waterloo to the English officer who bade the old guard surrender, a comment on life which the defeated, along the hard roads of the world, sometimes bawl at the victorious." A week after the tramp excitement had passed over, the city water began to smell and to taste. The Kronborgs had a well in their backyard and did not use city water, but they heard the complaints of their neighbors. At first, people said the town well was full of rotting cottonwood roots, but the engineer at the pumping station convinced the mayor that the water left the well untainted. Mayors reasoned slowly, but the well being eliminated, the official mind had to travel towards the standpipe. There was no other track for it to go in. The standpipe amply rewarded investigation. The tramp had got even with Moonstone. He had climbed the standpipe by the handholds and let himself down into 75 feet of cold water with his shoes and hat and roll of ticking. The city council had a mild panic and passed a new ordinance about tramps, but the fever had already broken out and several adults and half a dozen children died of it thea had always found everything that happened in moonstone exciting disasters particularly so it was gratifying to read sensational moonstone items in the denver paper but she wished she had not chanced to see the tramp as he came into town that evening sniffing the supper laden air His face remained unpleasantly clear in her memory, and her mind struggled with the problem of his behavior as if it were a hard page in arithmetic. Even when she was practicing, the drama of the tramp kept going on in the back of her head, and she was constantly trying to make herself realize what pitch of hatred or despair could drive a man to do such a hideous thing. She kept seeing him in his bedraggled clown suit, The white paint on his roughly shaven face playing his accordion before the saloon she had noticed his lean body his high bald forehead that sloped back like a curved metal lid how could people fall so far out of fortune she tried to talk to ray kennedy about her perplexity but ray would not discuss things of that sort with her it was in his sentimental conception of women that they should be deeply religious though men were at liberty to doubt and finally to deny A picture called the soul awakened popular in moonstone parlors pretty well interpreted ray's idea of woman's spiritual nature one evening when she was haunted by the figure of the tramp thea went up to dr archie's office she found him sewing up two bad gashes in the face of a little boy who had been kicked by a mule after the boy had been bandaged and sent away with his father thea helped the doctor wash and put away the surgical instruments THEN SHE DROPPED INTO HER ACCUSTOMED SEAT BESIDE HIS DESK AND BEGAN TO TALK ABOUT THE TRAMP. HER EYES WERE HARD AND GREEN WITH EXCITEMENT, THE DOCTOR NOTICED. IT SEEMS TO ME, DR. ARCHIE, THAT THE WHOLE TOWN'S TO BLAME. I'M TO BLAME MYSELF. I KNOW HE SAW ME HOLD MY NOSE WHEN HE WENT BY. FATHER'S TO BLAME. IF HE BELIEVES THE BIBLE, HE OUGHT TO HAVE GONE TO THE Calabaloose AND CLEANED THAT MAN UP AND TAKEN CARE OF HIM. THAT'S WHAT I CAN'T UNDERSTAND. DO PEOPLE BELIEVE THE BIBLE OR DON'T THEY? If the next life is all that matters and we're put here to get ready for it, then why do we try to make money or learn things or have a good time? There's not one person in Moonstone that really lives the way the New Testament says. Does it matter or don't it? Dr. Archie swung round in his chair and looked at her honestly and leniently. Well, see, it seems to me like this. Every people has had its religion. All religions are good and all are pretty much alike. But i don't see how we could live up to them in the sense you mean i've thought about it a good deal and i can't help feeling that while we are in this world we have to live for the best things of this world and those things are material and positive now most religions are passive and they tell us chiefly what we should not do the doctor moved restlessly and his eyes hunted for something along the opposite wall see here my girl take out the years of early childhood and the time we spend in sleep and dull old age and we only have about twenty able waking years. That's not long enough to get acquainted with half the fine things that have been done in the world, much less to do anything ourselves. I think we ought to keep the commandments and help other people all we can, but the main thing is to live those twenty splendid years, to do all we can and enjoy all we can. Dr. Archie met his little friend's searching gaze, the look of acute inquiry which always touched him. "'But poor fellows like that tramp!' "'She hesitated and wrinkled her forehead. "'The doctor leaned forward and put his hand protectingly over hers, "'which lay clenched on the green felt top. "'Ugly accidents happen, Thea, always have and always will. "'But the failures are swept back into the pile and forgotten. "'They don't leave any lasting scar in the world, "'and they don't affect the future. "'The things that last are the good things.' The people who forge ahead and do something, they really count. He saw tears on her cheeks, and he remembered that he had never seen her cry before, not even when she crushed her finger when she was little. He rose and walked to the window, came back and sat down on the edge of his chair. Forget the tramp, Thea. This is a great big world, and I want you to get about and see it all. You're going to Chicago some day and do something with that fine voice of yours you're going to be a number one musician and make us proud of you take mary anderson now even the tramps are proud of her there isn't a tramp along the queue system who hasn't heard of her we all like people who do things even if we only see their faces on a cigar box lid they had a long talk thea felt that dr archie had never let himself out to her so much before it was the most grown-up conversation she had ever had with him she left his office happy flattered and stimulated she ran for a long while about the white moonlit streets looking up at the stars and the bluish night at the quiet houses sunk in black shade the glittering sand hills. she loved the familiar trees and the people in those little houses and she loved the unknown world beyond denver she felt as if she were being pulled in two between the desire to go away forever and the desire to stay forever She had only 20 years, no time to lose. Many a night that summer, she left Dr. Archie's office with a desire to run and run about those quiet streets until she wore out her shoes, or wore out the streets themselves, when her chest ached and it seemed as if her heart were spreading all over the desert. When she went home, it was not to go to sleep. She used to drag her mattress beside her low window and lie awake for a long while, vibrating with excitement as a machine vibrates from speed life rushed in upon her through that window or so it seemed in reality of course life rushes from within not from without there is no work of art so big or so beautiful that it was not once all contained in some youthful body like this one which lay on the floor in the moonlight pulsing with ardour and anticipation it was on such nights that thea kronborg learned the thing that old dumas meant when he told the romanticists that to make a drama he needed but one passion and four walls end of chapter 17 and 18 recording by jackie drown